Welcome, everybody. This is the Reality Czars Podcast, and I'm your host today. Uh, today, Nate, I think Thomas is running late. He might show up. He might not. I don't know where Thomas is at, but that's okay. I am honored to have Walter Block on. Thank you so much, sir, for joining me. My pleasure. I, I've been looking forward to this for so long. I met you years... Ah, here's Thomas. I'm sorry. Buddy. <laughs> here's my co-host, Thomas. Uh mm. So I met you back in the day. I think it was around 2017. I think it was, and I think it was the last time that um, well, I haven't seen it since that Mises, uh, you did a, an event in Seattle, and so you were in my neck of the woods. So I came and got to got to meet you. I met uh, Tom Woods as well and Bob Murphy and saw their live version of uh, uh, Contra Krugman. That was a lot of fun. Have you guys have you do you guys have any plans to come back to Seattle or has the West Coast gotten a little crazy or Well, my son lives in uh, Seattle and I visit from time to time, so uh, I'll probably be there this summer. Oh, that's cool. And you're in Canada right now. That's crazy. That's awesome. I I don't think Canada will let me in right now, honestly. Uh I ha- I got like a DUI when I was 18 years old and that was man, well like 15 years ago, but I still don't think they let you in the country. So I have to figure that out. <laughs> uh, well, Walter, we are very happy to have you here. And um, my friend here, Thomas, he is the king of um, devil's advocate. And I said, you are the prince of devil's advocate because uh, there is a king and his name is Walter Block. And uh, so I wanted to introduce you guys. I want you guys to have some fun conversations uh, because you both are uh, the kings of contrarianism. And it warms my heart. <laughs> uh, so well, talk- I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off. I mean, I don't really have any specific questions in general. I just I happen whenever we're talking to people on this show. Uh, happen to like taking devil's advocate just because it presents, uh, you know, pokes holes in theories. I was in a debate team fun, long, long time ago, and I underst- understand and appreciate sometimes having to take a position you don't even necessarily agree in um, just to follow it to its logical conclusion. So I guess, like, I'd like to know from you, what are the what are the topics that people think are the hardest to defend, but to you are fairly trivial? Um, are there any like ones that that people in general think that it would be the the hardest to provide, you know, a succinct defense um, for a certain type of person, behavior, specific event? Well, uh, one that I have trouble with my own students at Loyola University, uh, especially the freshman students, is the minimum wage law. Uh, they all. Um, not all, but many, most of them think the minimum wage law is a great idea and that it raises wages and that anyone who opposes the minimum wage is doing it because he hates the poor. And um, I try to explain that uh, minimum wage law doesn't really help. It really hurts the poor. A lot of people see the minimum wage law as like a floor and the higher you raise it, the higher wages are. 
the way I see it, it's more like a barrier over which you have to jump to get a job. And the higher it is, the harder it is to jump over it into employment. Uh, for example, if the minimum wage law is $10 an hour and my uh, productivity is only $7 an hour, if you guys hire me at 10 and I only produce seven for you, you're going to lose $3 an hour on my services. And if you keep me, and especially if you hire other people, you're going to go broke. So how is the minimum wage law helping people? But this is a very hard idea to get across to people. Uh, Bernie Sanders goes around the country saying it should be 10, 15, 20, even 25 they're talking about now. Uh, many people support it. They think that if you oppose it, you're cruel and you're a capitalist pig or something like that. Uh, so that, that's a tough road to hoe. And um, that would be one um, issue that you asked, uh, uh, what's an issue that I find hard to um, uh, uh, implement or uh, convince people of? I like that one. I feel like that one has some uh, logical conclusions to it, although maybe you can explain to me because it feels like that um, the minimum wage to be opposed to it works better in a system where you don't have people entering the country that are constantly willing to undercut until the general standard of living across the board goes down. Right. So if, if uh, immigration causes lower and lower wages in a system that has no minimum wage, um, doesn't that affect the citizens more so than it affects, you know, people that are coming in and willing to work for less and less? Well, I, I think the way I'd answer that one is, and I appreciate you might be playing devil's advocate, which I think is uh, important, uh, as, as you articulated. Uh, you have to ask, what determines wages in the first place? And if you ask the average guy or gal, they're going to say it's employer generosity. Some employers are very generous. Um, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, some of these Apple or Amazon or um uh, these big tech companies, they pay everybody a lot of money because they have generous employers. And then uh, um, McDonald's is not so generous and, and they pay uh, very little. But that's not what determines wages. Um, if, if it were that, um, uh, if it were just generosity, the generous people would all go broke because they'd be paying more uh, than the ungenerous people. No, uh, what causes wages uh, the reason LeBron James makes, I don't know what, 50 million a year. And the reason I think the three of us make a middle class income uh, somewhere uh, in the high five figures, maybe uh, low six figures. Uh, and the reason uh, the guy who asks you if you want fries with that makes uh, 30,000 or 40,000 a year is because of different level of productivity. LeBron James can put rear ends in seats to watch him play basketball. The three of us, uh, our productivity is moderate. And uh, if you're pushing a broom around, uh, your productivity is very, very low. So wages tend to reflect productivity. And uh, the proof of this is um, uh, that um, uh, the uh, basketball team, what do they pay the guy who pushes the broom? They don't pay him uh, 50 million a year. Uh, they pay him a lot less. And McDonald's, what do they pay their executives? They don't pay them uh, uh, $12 an hour. 
they pay them, uh, you know, 150000 a year or wh whatever it is. So it's got nothing to do with uh, employer generosity. What it's got to do is with productivity. Now, when the immigrants come in, it's not a matter of what they'll accept. It's a matter of what is their productivity. And the proof of this is, look, suppose my productivity is $10 an hour to pick a, a round number. And suppose my wage starts out at $2 an hour. Well, if my wage is $2 an hour and my productivity is $10 an hour, then you guys are my employers. You're making $8 an hour off of me. Somebody is going to offer me $201. And they'll make only $799, but they'll have me and they'll make $799. And they'll say, better that I make $799 than you guys make $80. But then you guys are going to say $202. And they're going to say $203. It's going to be bid up to $10. On the other hand, if you guys are paying me $12 an hour and I'm only producing 10, you're losing $2 an hour and you're going to go broke. So the only um, uh, wage for me with my productivity of $10 an hour that is viable, that is uh, enduring, that in technical terms in economics is equilibrium, is $10 an hour. Because if it's any higher, the employer loses money. If it's any lower, somebody else can make money by uh, hiring that person away from the uh, uh, niggardly employer, the uh, cheapskate employer who's paying too low. So that's why wages tend to be productivity. Now, the productivity changes. And uh, tomorrow I might be um, uh, worth uh, $12 an hour and I'm only being paid 10. And uh, you don't get instantaneous reaction, but eventually I'm going to be creeping up. Uh, I'll ask for a raise or you, my bosses, are going to say, hey, you know, Walter is pretty good. He's producing uh, more than $10 an hour. I'd hate to lose him. I'll offer him ten fifty, And it'll start creeping up toward my new productivity level of, of 12. So I think wages, uh, uh, it's sort of like a leash on a dog. Uh, you, you tie the leash to a pole and the dog can uh, go in a circle for uh, the length of the leash, right? But eventually he's drawn toward that pole. He can't get away from the pole. Uh, so wages don't always equal productivity, but there's an inexorable market tendency to push him in that direction. I'm curious how inflation fits into this same concept if we kept on the minimum wage and, and you know, maybe it's not a floor it's this this uh, hurdle that you have to jump over but as this inflationary system takes effect and i don't know how much you believe into like the creature of jekyll island and that inflation is sort of like this necessary mechanic of it always needs to be growing because this whole entire system that we're in implies that there's always going to be growth and the only way that you can have this perpetual fictional growth is that if the uh, the supply keeps increasing indefinitely right so does that not like the inflation is technically lowering everybody's wages across the board. So at what point is there supposed to be regulation, balancing uh, anything? Well, you're right. Inflation is a very important thing to bring up. It's um, not exactly on point. You can talk about the minimum wage in the absence of discussion of inflation, or you could talk about inflation in the absence of a minimum wage. There are two uh, separate things, Fair but point. they do interact because as you say, uh, I'm now making $10 an hour and the average price is a, a, a dollar for a unit of food. 
And now all of a sudden the average price for um, uh, the market basket of food and clothing and shelter and everything else is $2. So I'm really only making $5 an hour in real terms. Uh, so that would be another adjustment. So uh, if, um, if my productivity hasn't changed, my productivity is still $10 an hour. Now I'm only making $5 an hour in real money. My wage is going to go up. Uh, maybe to $20 an hour, uh, in which case I'll be back to $10 in, in real terms. So that would be the interaction, sort of like a Venn diagram. Here's inflation, here's the minimum wage. And now we're discussing neither of them, but we're discussing the interaction between the two of them. And that would be one interaction, namely if um, uh, prices doubled. Well, wages would tend to double also. Uh, in equilibrium. Now, we're never in equilibrium, but we're always moving toward equilibrium. So that would be the interaction. But we can also discuss inflation uh, on its own apart from the minimum wage. And when you do that, um, what you're really getting at uh, is, especially if it's government-caused inflation, and that's the kind, that's the only kind that we have nowadays, it's really a sort of um, a theft, a sort of like um, a counterfeiting. Uh, I have a dollar in my uh, in my hand and it buys a certain amount and the government keeps creating more and more of these dollars and and more and more people are bidding for the goods. So obviously the price of goods is going to go up. So it's in effect that the government is counterfeiting. You know, one of the most powerful things that uh, the U.S. did in the uh, Vietnam War is they counterfeited North Vietnamese currency. And then they sort of dropped it out of um, uh, helicopters or whatever. Well, I suppose better than napalm uh, from their point of view. But uh, uh, the U.S. correctly thought that uh, this would be a way of undermining their economy. And you undermine their economy, and it's as if you've dropped a few bombs on them. I, I think it was um, Stalin or, or uh, Lenin who said that the best I think it was Lenin who said that the best way to attack a country is to debauch its currency. Well, the U.S. government now is debauching our own currency. Uh, and uh, so one of the effects of inflation is that it, um, it um, lowers the value of the dollar. And the people, widows and orphans and people on fixed uh, pensions, they're the ones who lose badly. Uh, out of it, whereas the people um, who get the money first, um, uh, the prices haven't risen yet and they've got more money, well, then they, they make out well from inflation, whereas the people on fixed incomes lose. So that's one element of inflation. Another element of inflation is that when it occurs, it lowers the interest rate. And the interest rate is a very important um, part of the economy because um, uh, the interest rate determines the length of production, how, how, uh, how roundabout can we be? Uh, can we afford uh, uh, to put in a coffee tree? A coffee tree will not yield coffee for 25 years after, after you start it. Well, you have to wait 25 years before you get your first crop. So at a, um, a very low interest rate, people might be willing to do that. At, at a higher rate of interest, uh, they would not be uh, as willing to do that. They would want something um, quicker. So the interest rate uh, feeds into the Austrian business cycle theory. And what it says is that uh, inflation, not only does it have a, an effect on raising prices, but it also creates the business cycle. Uh, that's why we have um, uh, 
stagflation. We have uh, rising um, uh, unemployment and rising prices. Uh, so uh, inflation is a very, very bad thing for the economy. And uh, Biden uh, and, and even um, uh, Trump uh, were, were uh, not good on, on the inflationary issue. Uh, the ideal uh, situation from an Austro-Libertarian point of view would be to get government. You know, we say we should separate government and religion. Well, we should also separate government and education, separate government and money, separate government and a lot of things. The anarchist position would be separate government from everything. The moderate libertarian view would be very, very limited government, maybe uh, armies to keep foreign bad guys off of us, uh, police to keep local bad guys off of us, and uh, courts to determine who are the good and the bad guys. Uh, that would be a very limited government uh, espoused by somebody like Ayn Rand or Robert Nozick, uh, maybe Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. Uh, so that would be the, the view that most libertarians hold, that uh, the government should have nothing to do with money. Well, Friedman would not hold that view, but uh, he's not as staunch a libertarian as, as these others. You mentioned how successful that Vietnam operation was to just drop, um, you know, counterfeit money to kind of tank the economy a little bit and just cause this immediate inflation. Wouldn't that be something that would kind of be off limits if government truly was, if our military forces was separate from economic forces and if it were separate from academic forces? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it was successful. And certainly the U.S. lost the Vietnam War. Uh, we didn't win. Uh, we lost. Uh, or I shouldn't say we. I should say they because I don't really feel I'm part of the government. Um, I mean, from a libertarian point of view, the, the function of the military is to not have eight hundred military bases scattered all around the world. It's to make sure that nobody attacks us. Ron Paul uh, is very clear on this. Uh, he wants to have a strong military, but a military for defense. You know, right now, the um, uh, what is it? The Denver uh, basketball team is um, uh, in contention with the uh, Florida basketball team, uh, the Heat. Uh, and uh, everyone in the basketball game knows when you're on defense or offense. And when the other team has the ball, they all yell defense, defense. Well, Ron Paul favors defense. But what we now have is offense. I mean, you have 800 military bases uh, in, I don't know, about 130 countries. And there are only 200 countries out there. Um, anytime two groups have a fight, the U.S. is involved. Uh, we, we shouldn't be the policemen of the world uh, who appointed us. Uh, we should make sure nobody attacks us. But who's going to attack us? Although nowadays the, the military is going woke and uh, <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be weaker. So, um, uh, but that's a different issue. Well, well I mean, I, on a, a similar issue to that, you could almost make the argument, and I, I guess stepping out of devil's advocate here, I'm curious what, what both of you guys think of this, but it seems that America had lost interest in just being like a national um defense situation like we were basically turned into the world police far more than the u like the un is supposed to be the world police but we fund a majority of the un and if it were the un versus the u.s military it would be no contest right so we, we essentially have taken that position as world police and as such we have bases in every country you can imagine because that facilitates intelligence gathering it facilitates um just having an a pre-made boots on ground operation and training. Cause even as we take over other countries and try to train them in our same sort of tactics, it doesn't ever seem to catch on 
You know, it, it doesn't seem that we can train foreign nationals and they take up arms and they operate the same way that I guess the like a regular civilian going to the U.S. military would. So I'm, I'm, this isn't an advocation for that, but I'm just wondering in the reality that we live in right now, um, aren't we far beyond that? Like um, America is now globalist America. Nate, do you want to get in on this or should I hop on on board? Well, I was just going to say, I think that we've kind of overstretched ourselves and made enemies with so many people around the world. I honestly don't know how long America is going to be the great globalist empire because it feels like you're the bully on the stage for, well, for a while. Or we're the stepping the stone, the kids right? Up. We're, we're the Petri dish. And, and the scientists, yeah. once the culture has grown in the Petri dish, they don't care what happens to that original um agar you know what i mean they just throw it out and they develop the culture and like a new fancier thing so perhaps america was just kind of the breeding ground for i guess these these unbridled globalist capitalists and uh this is just the launch board see ron paul is very intent on on saying that he he's not a an isolationist he doesn't want to isolate the u.s from other countries he wants to trade with other countries and if other countries are having a dispute and they call upon the u.s to be a mediator uh that would be okay he he just doesn't want to be the policeman of the world as you uh, uh, uh properly say and uh he doesn't he certainly doesn't want the u.s to be attacking all sorts of countries that uh, never posed any danger to us so um, I think I'm a Ron Paulian, not only in this regard, but in pretty much every regard. I, I think that he's done a magnificent work in promoting liberty. And yeah, I, I just wish. Ron Paul. Yay. Yay, Ron Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is fascinating. It's an interesting idea. Um, I just wish. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right, Thomas, that uh, we were. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we were uh, the guys to prove out the idea, and uh, who knows who's going to be the guy that fills in that gap when we, uh, when the vacuum, you know. Well, and I've got another. I'm I'm curious, Walter, on your perspective here, because I I've got a very one track mind from just the limited number of books I've read on very specific topics. So my understanding is that uh, ever since Andrew Jackson, we've been fighting against some sort of like a central bank authority that basically takes control of that inflationary process and it you know puts it in a boardroom outside of the confines of civilians and voters and up until 1913 when they in they actually instituted the the federal reserve right on jekyll island was that the turning point in which um it, it all went off the rails or was it was that going to happen regardless of the federal reserve was there always something in the play Oh, I think the uh, Federal Reserve uh, System, the Fed uh, is called, um, is uh, very guilty of um, messing up the economy, uh, creating the business cycle, creating inflation. Uh, their goal was um, uh, to keep the value of the dollar. And if you look at the value of the dollar in 1913 and you look at the value of the dollar in uh, 2023, uh, it's lost about 98 or 99 or maybe 97 percent of its value. Uh, which is, you know, horrendous. Uh, so that was one of its goals to keep the value of the dollar. Not that the value of the dollar, not that it should have kept the value of the dollar. The, the dollar uh, uh, should uh, value should fluctuate uh, as far as I'm concerned. But that was its uh, uh, 
mission that it took on. And its second mission was uh, unemployment. Well, we had a lot of unemployment under the Fed's operation, uh, 1929 to, well, I don't know, uh, 1945 or whenever whenever the Great Depression, uh, there was a lot of um, unemployment. In, in which we were bailed out by the same people that passed the Federal Reserve, no? <laughs> well, I, I think uh, the end of World War II uh, we had a lot more freedom, and that's why we had a, a, a reversion, and not, and not the Fed shouldn't take any credit for that. But now the Fed is taking on, uh, it's becoming woke. It's now taking on, uh, what is it, um, uh, temperature change and, um, and uh, sexism and racism and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, it's doing such a great job on inflation and keeping the value of the dollar and on unemployment uh, that somehow it's mission creep. It's just taking on more and more. Uh, it's like the, the monster that, you know, takes over everything. Uh, I, I think the Fed ought to be disbanded. I, I don't think we need a Fed. I don't think we need a central bank. I think we should just have um, um, uh, a free enterprise banking system. And I think that, um, you know, Milton Friedman, we mentioned him before, he had this um, a TV series, a very good TV series called Free to Choose. And yet he doesn't apply it to gold. Uh, because whenever people were free to choose, they chose gold or sometimes silver, but mainly gold. And yet he was um, virulently opposed to gold. They would call uh, gold supporters gold bugs or whatever it was. Um, this sort of leads me to the question, why do we have money in the first place? Um, uh, and I don't mean because it makes you rich, but why did uh, the society choose to have money? And uh, how did it come about? Well, it all stemmed from this thing called the double coincidence of wants. I have a chicken and I want a pickle. I have to, without money, without any trade intermediary, I have to find someone who's got a pickle and wants a chicken. What are the odds of that? I mean, I can find plenty of people who want a pickle, but uh, uh, who have a pickle, but they might not want a chicken. Right. We, we debate this all the time. And, and another on top of that uh, that you're kind of describing is that you also have to be able to network and then find the people that know the people that want the chicken or the pickle and vice versa. But then that also means you have to maintain a large network of acquaintances and keep on good terms with everyone. Whereas in this modern society, right, you can just be shacked away in a little bubble and have an Internet connection and, you know, trade and and, um, you know, sell and buy things with this kind of like universal currency where no one has to worry about the chickens and the pickles until it leaves this kind of etheric realm. So what, well, I, so, so I guess convenience is the answer. No, no, I look upon it a little differently the way I look at it. And this is not original with me. This sort of basic uh, economics one one is what I do instead of looking for a guy uh, who's got a uh, pickle and wants a chicken, I trade in my chicken for salt or sugar or something that everybody wants, uh, especially salt. The, in the age before refrigeration, you needed salt to preserve food. So I now trade in my chicken and I buy salt. And now I go to the salt uh, to the pickle guy and I say, hey, I know you don't want salt, but you and I know that if you take this salt, you can get anything you want. You want a bicycle? The guy with a bicycle will accept salt. So the guy gives me a pickle and I give him some salt. So I make two trades. Instead of a direct trade of a chicken for a pickle, I go chicken, salt, pickle. I have a, and now salt becomes the money. 
So because all money is, is a trade intermediary. You don't need a, a list of people. You don't need a computer. Certainly we didn't have computers uh, a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago when money first erupted, when money first came about. So now we have a competition. Well, what, what should be the trade intermediary? Bananas wouldn't do it because they go rotten after two or three days. Diamonds wouldn't do it because you can't make change in, in a diamond. If you break a diamond in half, I think you lose seven-eighths of the value of the big diamond, uh, the two little diamonds. So you'd never make change with, with diamonds. Uh, cement wouldn't do because uh, you have to carry uh, 300 pounds of cement around uh, to buy a, a chicken because cement is not that valuable per cubic and per weight. So you had a, a, a competition as to what would be the best trade intermediary. And whenever people were free to choose, they chose gold, pretty much, sometimes silver. And uh, at one time in, in prisoner war camps in Germany, uh, they used uh, cigarettes. And other people use... Uh, they still you know, do that in prison today. <laughs> uh, yeah, in prison today, they, they might use cigarettes. Uh, because they're forbidden to have money. So, uh, but outside of prisons, uh, uh, gold was usually picked. And and gold, see, why doesn't the government want the gold system? Well, now you have to ask, well, how does government get money? And there are only three ways. The first way is taxes. The problem with taxes, everybody knows who's taxing. Even the government can't fool people and say, well, it's really free enterprise that's taxing you. They know it's the IRS. The second way that the government could get money is by borrowing. But everyone knows who's sending out the, the government bonds. It's the government who's borrowing. The third way is through inflation, but you can't inflate gold. Uh, they try to inflate gold, and that's why they put these little things around the coin, because people would clip the coin, and, and, and but it was very inefficient. Much more efficient is a central bank. tried for a long time, too. I'm sorry. I said alchemists tried for a long time too, trying to turn lead into gold. But right, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, the reason that the government uh, and government agents like Milton Friedman on the money issue, limited to the money issue, on many other areas, Milton Friedman was a good free enterpriser, but not on on money. Murray Rothbard used to have this uh, saying that people specialize in what they're horrible at. And Milton Friedman was really good at minimum wage, at, um, I don't know, uh, free trade and uh, rent control and a lot of things. But what did he specialize in? Money and school vouchers, uh, where he was very bad because the libertarian view on school vouchers just privatized schools. Uh, schools should no more be public than um, uh, hamburgers. Uh, or uh, shoes. Uh, you know, you want schooling, you go buy some. You want shoes, go buy some. Uh, uh, so Friedman was very bad on this issue, and um, that's why uh, the government doesn't like the gold standard, and the government wants to forbid people to have gold. I think FDR did that in 33. I, I'm, I'm not a historian. I don't remember exactly which year, but somewhere during the Great Depression, he wanted people to get off gold. Well, gold is um, the, the market money. And we need money to facilitate trade so you don't have to know people. You just go to the store and here's some gold, um, uh, one uh, hundredth of an ounce of gold, and, and I buy a pair of shoes. And, and that's, it, that's it. Do you think there, there's an ideal reality? Not a, that doesn't have to be a realistic one, but would there be an ideal situation where everyone does just trade on straight gold? 
and there is no yeah. fiat currency whatsoever. Yes, and we had that in, in the past, and things were pretty good. You see, the, the problem with me saying that is, uh, look, we had a lot more free enterprise in the year, um, I don't know, 1730. Forgetting about slavery, um, which obviously is not part of the free enterprise system, it's coercion. But we had a lot more free enterprise in um, uh, 1820 than we have now, and yet we're a lot richer now. So people say, well, you know, free enterprise uh, is no good because we had it uh, 200 years ago and, and uh, we were poor and now we're rich and we have half socialism. Well, the answer is we have a lot more innovations nowadays. Uh, so you can't hold that constant. And a much better way, in one of my books, what we do is we uh, rate about 110 countries and we ask 17 questions. Um, how much taxes? Uh, do you have unions? Uh, do you have free trade? This, that, and the other. And we try to measure the the degree of economic freedom of a country. And then we ask, well, what's the per capita income of the country? And then we ask, well, what's the correlation? Is there any correlation? And there is a very powerful correlation. The countries that are relatively free are um, uh, relatively rich. And the countries that are relatively not free are, are very poor. So Adam Smith wrote a book about this, uh, The Wealth of Nations, and he said if you, if you want to uh, enrich a country, adopt free enterprise. And I think uh, he wrote that in 1776, and, and that statement is no less true nowadays than it was then. So if you become a dictator of some country and you're a benevolent dictator and you want to improve the lot of the people, Adopt free enterprise, private property rights, um, uh, the, the law of non-aggression. Uh, you only uh, outlaw murder, rape, theft, uh, uh, stuff like that, and you don't have any victimless crimes. You don't put people in jail for uh, capitalist acts between consenting adults like uh, prostitution or gambling or drugs. Uh, you legalize pretty much everything, and then you're going to have a rich country. And uh, the economics profession, I won't say is unanimous on this, but um, of all disciplines, uh, sociology, anthropology, uh, whatever, history, uh, economics would be the most oriented toward free enterprise. I'm curious, where do uh, child labor laws and sort of, I guess, company store indentured servitude fit into this? Are those just completely off limits in that sort of a system? Well, or let's, is take there room each, for that? let's take each one of those. Uh, first, let's take um, child labor. Right. And let, let's specify it's manual labor, some sort of, you know, perhaps dangerous manual labor and not just. They yeah, could be no. a machinist like me. Right. There you go. A my, machinist. My child to work with me. Yeah. We're not talking about a child actor or a right. child uh, pianist uh, who, uh, you know, plays the piano in an orchestra or something like that or is on a TV show. We're talking about hard labor. Correct. And we're going to ask, will a child labor law help or hurt? Well, is, is there an, is there even a place for ethics or morals in that regard? Well, there are two issues. One is the normative. The other is the positive. The uh, normative would be, uh, is it rightful? Is it just? The uh, positive or the pragmatic would be, will a child labor law help reduce child labor? Look, we all agree uh, child labor is not a good thing. And the less child labor we have, the better. Fine, let's stipulate that. But now the question, the, the, um, the, the ethical view of this will follow from the pragmatic, because if the law against child labor will help reduce child labor, well, then it's uh, sort of ethical. 
to pass that law. On the other hand, if uh, the minimum wage hurts unemployment, then it's not ethical to pass it. And if the child labor law hurts child labor by making the children worse off, well, then uh, it's hardly ethical. So the more basic question that you have to ask first is, will the child labor law uh, reduce child labor? And the answer is no. So let me prove this. So let me give my reasons for believing this. Okay. My contention is that the um, reason we don't have child labor now in uh, 2023 is not because there are laws against it. It's because we're so rich that we can afford to keep the children. Uh, look, okay, the kid, uh, the, it's the summer and he's 14 and he wants to deliver some newspapers. What the heck? Uh, summer, uh, it's probably good for kids to work. That's not what we mean by child labor. Uh, a 12-year-old uh, selling lemonade somewhere uh, on the summer because uh, he doesn't really need it. It's just uh, extra money. That's not what we mean by child labor. What we mean by child labor is 365 days in a mine not even on a machine, but in a coal mine where it's very, very dangerous. You have cave-ins. That's the kind of child labor we're talking about or working for dangerous machines also uh, or going up a, a chimney and, and uh, dealing with what's inside of a chimney. That's the, the child labor we're talking about. My contention is the reason we don't have it is because we're rich. And if we impose the, the child labor too early, we'd kill the kids. See what happens in third world countries, in um, the Philippines, in, um, uh, I don't know, Bangladesh, places like that. When they have child labor laws, the kids go to the garbage dumps and try to get food because they can't work. Or they get into prostitution, which I think is even worse than, than child labor in, in many ways. Uh, look, suppose we had a child labor law in the year 1500 that nobody under 16 could work in a mine or a factory or anything else. We'd have vast deaths of children because we weren't rich enough in the year 1500 to allow 14-year-olds um, uh, not to work. They had to work. If they didn't work, they died. We were so poor. So then what happened in the, the year 1600, we became a little richer and um, you, you could have the law that, okay, 15-year-olds uh, can't work. And then in the year 1700, we got a little richer and we said, well, 14-year-olds uh, can't work. Namely, as we got rich, the law kept going uh, to try to take credit for what was really getting rid of child labor, namely wealth. And if we would have imposed it too early, uh, you go back to 1100 and you have child labor law, the kids die. Uh, because we were so poor, we needed child labor to keep them alive. So this child labor is something that the uh, socialists toss in the face of capitalists. And they say, well, you know, under capitalism, you'd have child labor. No, under capitalism, we'd be rich and we wouldn't need child labor. And when we were very poor, and some countries are very poor now, you don't want to have child labor because it's better for them to labor in, in a factory or in a mine than to look in the garbage cans or whatever, or to be prostitutes and, and have a child sex, which is even worse, or, or, to, or to die. Much better to work, even though it's dangerous, than to die. And, and uh, a thousand years ago, uh, if you had child labor law, there'd be mass deaths of children. So that would be my answer uh, for the child labor. Now, you mentioned two or three other things, but I forgot what they were, Tom. 
Well, I'd actually like to, to pivot from that one on, on something that's similar, but maybe has a slightly different uh, approach to it. So let's talk about, um, say, like harmful waste laws, where you would have to be operating in some kind of a regulation that says, I'm not going to dump uh, byproducts of whatever I'm producing into the water, into the forest or whatever. Uh, and I guess th that one's sort of a self-agreed upon. You don't want to kind of, you know, poop where you sleep and you don't want to ruin the city where the your workers live and everything else but it seems like what can happen then is they just offset that by doing it in a different area or going to another country where they do allow the exact same amount of hazardous waste without regulation so then the companies that do that and i guess i would consider that sort of an unethical practice if you agree it shouldn't happen in your own area but then just pay for it to happen in some other area um, but it seems like in the capitalist system it, you know, the profits would favor companies that would take those approaches. So then at a certain point, everyone has to do it, just like everyone's going to manufacture out of China. And I, I don't want to bring child labor laws, but, you know, China, China has less regulation for how it needs to treat its workers um, along with ages and everything. So if we if we shift that over to sort of like hazardous waste output, so we remove the human element, you know, is is there a similar answer to that? Yeah, very similar answer. Uh, what you're really now talking about is the problem of pollution, whether it's air pollution, uh, you're putting junk into the atmosphere, or uh, you're polluting the water. And uh, what's that city near Cleveland? I forget where it was, where the water was horrible. Yeah. Uh, so, Flint, Michigan, too. There was a lot of them. It. Flint, Michigan is the one I was thinking of. Thanks. Uh, so whether it's uh, noise pollution is another one. Uh, smell pollution from pig farms uh, right. next door. So you're talking about pollution. And whether it's air or water or smell or noise, it's all the same economically. Uh, we look at it through the same supply and demand curves. It's pollution. And this is a, um, a um, uh, what do you call it, a vulnerable point in the view of the socialists of the capitalist system. They say, yeah, capitalism, uh, but but what about pollution? You're going to allow pollution and, and we're going to all uh, suffocate. Or uh, Right now, New York City is, um, uh, I, I think, one of the worst air qualities uh, in the world, worse than uh, places in India, which are usually very bad. It's because of the forest fires in eastern Canada. And what they're saying is, forget about forest fires, let's talk about steel mills. What are steel mills doing? They're putting crap into the air and it gets into our lungs. And in the days when we hung laundry on a clothesline, nowadays we have uh, dryers, but in the days when we had clothesline, you hang it up and it was wet and clean and you come back two hours later and it's dry, but, but it's dirty. And, uh, and, and what they say is that the steel mill takes into account all sorts of costs. It takes into account the cost of labor. It has to pay its workers. It takes into account the uh, the uh, the cost of the coal and the iron, uh, the raw materials that make steel. It takes into account the interest rate. It has to pay money uh, for its loans. But there's one thing that it doesn't take into account, namely pollution. It, it shifts the pollution onto other people. And this is uh, what's called a market failure. That would be the case uh, against the market uh, on the basis of pollution. Now, Murray Rothbard wrote this splendid essay. I forget the full title. It's something like Air Pollution. Uh, and it was in the Cato Journal around 1980, 82, somewhere in there. Uh, if, if 
if it was David Friedman here, he'd be able to tell you the exact month and the page numbers, but I can't do that. I'm doing my best. And what Murray said is, look, this is not a market activity. This is trespass. Look, if I take my garbage, my eggshells, my uh, orange peels, my coffee grinds, uh, bacon grease, and I pour it on your my neighbor and I pour it on your front lawn, what are you going to do? Well, if you're a nice guy, you're going to come to me and say, hey, did you lose your mind? Uh, was this an accident? Uh, come here and clean it up. If you're not such a nice neighbor, you'll call the cops. And uh, the cops will say you're guilty of trespass. Now, suppose what I do is before taking the orange peels and, and the uh, lemon rinds and all, and I dump it on your lawn, I burn it first. And now I send it over to your lawn in the form of dust particles. Is there any difference? No, it's the same thing. The government has failed. It's not a market failure. It's the, the government sets itself up as the monopoly lawgiver. And, and look, if I came to your house uninvited, and, and, and uh, that would be a trespass. Well, it's the same trespass if I put crap in the air and it gets into your lungs. The government should pass a law saying no trespass. And if you do it, we should sue you because the, you're, the, you're guilty. We don't need any Clean Air Act or any uh, government uh, uh, taking over of uh, the waterways. And if you have a mud puddle, they say it's part of the uh, nav navigable waters. We don't need the EPA. All we need is, uh, is a court which will allow me to sue you to make you stop. Now, the argument against that is, well, you know, steel mills don't, aren't the only ones. It's automobiles. How many automobile uh, are there in the U.S.? 100 million, give or take. Each one gives this much pollution, <laughs> namely very little. So what are you going to do? Sue every guy with a car? Uh, and in law, you have this thing called de minimis. The government doesn't take into account trifles. Look, we all exhale. When we exhale, we're exhaling carbon dioxide. Uh, are you going to sue each other for exhaling? No, that, that's silly. What you do, Murray says, is you sue the road owner, namely we would have private highways. You sue the, the, the highway owner. Look, suppose there's a nightclub uh, two blocks away from you and it's very noisy. Do you sue each person in the nightclub? No, you sue the nightclub owner for uh, being a, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a place of, uh, of noise pollution. Well, you sue the road owner. So the, the Rothbard view, the libertarian view uh, on, on pollution is sue the bastards or, you know, that's the American way. Sue, sue the perpetrators of, of um, uh, trespass. It's just trespass. It's not any, a market failure and it's not a, um, a failure of the free enterprise system. It's a failure of government to uphold pri private property rights. The essence of private property rights is to repel trespassers. Well, you're a trespasser when you uh, uh, pollute. And, and I have a book on why we should privatize o oceans, rivers, and lakes. If I own the Mississippi and you start dumping crap into it, I'm going to sue your rear end off. Right now, who owns those rivers? The government owns the rivers. It's government's fault. So it's the same thing with, with uh, water pollution, air pollution. Uh, take noise pollution. Uh, an airport comes in. And uh, the noise, uh, the airport runways is just one square mile, but the noise pollution is uh, 10 square miles. And um, uh, let's say they're the first ones there. Well, then they own the right to make the noise. And by the way, the steel mill in Pittsburgh, uh, they were there first. 
So it's called coming to the nuisance if you start suing the, the steel mill because they were there first. And based on Lockheed and homesteading theory, the person who owns the land is the one who homesteaded it first. The person who owns the pollution rights is the person who homesteaded it first, who, who made the, the, the pollution first. So that would be the uh, the five-minute version of the answer to the objection to the free enterprise system based on pollution. Nate, do you want to hop in at all? I just want to make sure I'm not monopolizing. I mean, I was just going to, I was going to go back to the child labor thing, but like, there's no point. I was just going to say like, like, like Walter eloquently said about us being so rich that we don't have to do that anymore. And it was, and about it being a productivity thing where like, where there might be an example that you use, like a child pianist, a child that could play the piano so expertly that might bring, you know, uh, people into seats and pay money for tickets to see this like child prodigy. That's, that's, that's the LeBron. <laughs> right. But like if at my machining company, you bring in some kids in there with their little wimpy weak arms and you're like telling them to like torque down like this giant piece of steel, you know, um, they're not going to be worth very much money. So uh, in those situations, like kids, like, so we've gotten to a place where uh, we don't need kids to work. Kids don't need, like, if they're not worth, <laughs> their labor is not very valuable. So, like, why on earth would I hire a child to do a man's work, right? And so, uh, and I was going to give an example. Uh, when I was in certain part, parts of Mexico, uh, we were near this old, um, uh, well, you had given an example. I can't remember what the heck it, what it's called. Oh, it was a dump. So they built the city around this dump. And so there's these little kids that like go through the dump every single day and they find little scrap metals and they can sell it so that they can eat something. And it's horribly tragic. And in Mexico, it would be better for them to have a job because otherwise they end up in that dump and they get horrible infections, die early, things like that. Uh, and one thing that I do like about Mexico, at least the area that I was in, I was near like Encinita, not not too far away from Tijuana. Uh, the free market really does save a lot of lives there because every single corner that I was at, people had a store. Every single house had a store. Little kids would be like trying to sell you gum. Or trying to sell you a candy bar or well, you know if i can if i can switch back to devil's advocate on this example that you brought up right so if there's little kids that are scavenging for scraps of metal in these junkyards which is a horrible uh sort of i guess job to have then doesn't that prove that there is some sort of an amount of you know productivity that a child can offer that you know like it's obviously not their parents out there uh, or maybe they're alongside them, but you know, maybe it's just like more the merrier. So there, there clearly is a role that, that, you know, an eight year old could play in bringing yeah, more money into in the a household. Very poor country. That's necessary is what I'm saying. And in this very rich country, I don't need to send my kid, Hey, go in that dump pile and go grab some metal. Although, <laughs> but, but I mean, I guess, I guess I would make a, a long stretch that might be a little bit strained, but perhaps the reason that they're even able to salvage that metal and sell it for a profit is because ultimately that metal might its way all the way back into the United States. And now it turns into like an Apple watch or, you know, the, the panel on the side of a car. So like ultimately someone was someone in the States or someone elsewhere um, might've been indirectly in charge of, you know, creating that job and, and putting them into that trash pile. 
Well, my my expectation, I don't know the Mexican situation in this regard. I know the Mexican situation in another regard, which I'd like to talk about in a minute. But in this regard, I suspect that there's a law, a child labor law in Mexico, so the kids can't get a job that they'd be good at. So they have to do this crap. The, the issue uh, that I think I know a little bit more about in Mexico is drugs. Uh, my understanding is that the drug gangs in Mexico fight the police on almost equal terms. Uh, you don't have that in the United States. If it's a drug gang versus the U.S. military or police, uh, the, the drug people run away uh, or are vastly outgunned. But in Mexico, they're, they're strengthened. So what should we do? What we should do is legalize all drugs. Look, we had the, the alcohol prohibition, uh, and uh, during alcohol prohibition, the gangs were uh, shooting each other and hitting um, innocent uh, third parties. And nowadays, with regard to drugs, does anyone shoot anyone in the U.S. over wine or beer or booze? No. Not often. Well, maybe beer. <laughs> well, uh, maybe in Florida, in your parts. Yeah, in Florida, you're, definitely. You're just uh, teasing here. Uh, there are no purveyors of beer, wine. I mean, you get drunk, you shoot, you get into a fight. But, but uh, we don't have bathtub gin, which killed people, and we don't have people shooting each other over alcohol turf. You want some alcohol? You go to Safeway, or you go to the A and P, or whatever the, the store is. You, you go to Walmart. Uh, you don't. Uh, uh, Walmart doesn't shoot uh, uh, Safeway uh, over uh, uh, beer turf. Well, what I'm saying is that if the Mexicans legalized it, then the uh, then then the the stuff would be sold like it is in Canada, where um, uh, you see, first we legalize marijuana, we legalize marijuana uh, for medicinal purposes, then we legalize it for uh, recreational purposes uh, in Canada and in um, Washington State. Uh, by the way, where is cocaine legal in the U.S.? Oregon. Thank God for Oregon. Yep. Uh, they legalized cocaine and there'll be no shooting over cocaine in Oregon because you want cocaine. You just go over here to the store. It says cocaine. Well, that's what the Mexicans should do if they want to uh, alleviate this this problem. Now, the argument against this is, well, then uh, the gangs won't disappear. They'll engage in murder or um, kidnapping or whatever. But the point is, you'll have weakened them. Because right now, uh, uh, based on, on the reality, they have said that that. Uh, drugs is a um, uh, a viable enterprise for them. So you're weakening them. You're not going to end uh, all crime if you legalize this stuff, and you're certainly not going to legalize a murder and kidnapping. But but uh, but drugs are a victimless crime. Uh, why should an adult person? Children are different. But why should an adult not be able to put crap into their body? And and by the way, I'm I'm a teetotaler. I don't have beer, wine, alcohol. I, I certainly don't have any drugs except penicillin and aspirin, but, you know, that, that's a different kind of a drug. Um, uh, but I, I, I think that people have a right to put whatever they want in their bodies if they're adults. And, and it's, a, it's a violation of rights. We're talking about ethics uh, to, to put people in jail for, for putting beer into their body during prohibition and to put marijuana into their body uh, before marijuana was legal and to put cocaine into their body anywhere else but Oregon. Uh, so that would be my advice to the Mexicans and to the Americans and to everybody. Legalize all drugs. That, that's one of the hardest ones to have a devil's advocate point of view on. Although the, the, the one 
that's that's shaky, but it's one that made the most logical sense was similar to seatbelt laws, where seatbelt law could technically be a victimless crime um, unless you turn into like a missile and hurt someone else. But that's that's in a, a minority of cases. But it seems that the logic behind the seatbelt law is that you could reasonably have dependents. You might have family or children that you need to look after. And by not wearing your seatbelt, therefore you die. And then now you've just left, you know, more people out into the world that are worse off without you. And I've, I've heard that stretched over to saying, and that's why you don't have heroin for sale at every gas station is because, you know, dad might not come home. Then we should put people in jail for obesity. I mean, <laughs> just look, if you weigh 400 pounds, you're more likely to die and leave your hey, life. I, I feel personally attacked. Oh, well, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean it that way, but uh, I think that would be the reductio ad absurdum. Look, I promise you guys an hour, and yeah. the hour is coming to a close, and I just want to say I greatly enjoyed it, and um, let's stay in touch. Yes, Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you, Walter. It was a pleasure meeting you. You're truly a legend, and we appreciate you so much. And we'd love to have you back on sometime. Thank you, That'll sir. Be good. Take care. And uh, send me the URL for this discussion, okay? Can, can we sneak in one last question before you go, if it's a short sure. one? One last one. Do you have a favorite cryptid by any chance? A favorite Big, what? Cryptid, like Bigfoot or um, a Yeti or a Loch Ness Monster anything at all even as a child did you like any of any of these like supernatural creatures i'm just curious superman superman counts we can call superman a cryptid i like superman, superman was technically an alien he came from another planet and he had powers yeah absolutely, right. absolutely. i like that superman is. take care guys <laughs> thank you walter thank Bye. you walter